as they do. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. Four weeks ago, tomorrow night, there were three groups of people. There were Bama fans, there were Georgia fans, and there was everyone else. How you responded to the national championship game, told everyone about your allegiances, right? Said something about your heart, specifically with respect to college football. Bama fans lamented, finally, right? Dog fans rejoiced. But there were a lot of people that were ambivalent, right? Didn't have, pun intended, a dog in the fight. We were ambivalent about the outcome. But imagine if there was an event that was global in nature, the, that was so consequential, the consequences were so immense and significant that every single person on the face of the earth would either lament or rejoice and there would be no one who was ambivalent. In Revelation 18, John is given a revelation of just such an event. Uh, an event that will happen one day that will be global in scope and will be so consequential that it will reveal the allegiances of everyone in the world. And that event is the fall of Babylon. We discussed the fall of Babylon last week as it was announced, as her indictment was read, and as the voice of heaven called out to the church, come out of her, come out of her. We remember who Babylon is. She is not a literal woman who was a prostitute. Neither is she simply an historical, figure, a historical city that was destroyed in the 5th century B.C. Instead, she is the world system around us. She is the pagan, godless culture around us that exalts self with prideful arrogance, exalts sensuous living, and a culture that rejects God and the Bible and is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the 5th century BC, it was an historical city and empire called Babylon. But the name Babylon became synonymous with a, a, a culture of idolatry and following after other gods, a culture of sensuous lifestyles and unchallenged authority. So in John's day, when he wrote this, the Babylon of that day was Rome. And in our day, Babylon is any culture, all cultures who cry out to us, Come to me, and I'll make your every dream come true. Only leave your God at home, 
I've got a God for you here. But in an eschatological sense, because again, I believe that there is a a future orientation to our understanding of this book. I believe that the Babylon that's mentioned here is, is not just that culture throughout the ages, but also includes a final world culture that will be influential throughout the entire world. And that will also be exalting self and sensuous living to new heights and will violently and actively oppose and attack the church. Last week we were told of the fall of Babylon. Fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. And we ended at verse 8, which says, For this reason, in other words, because of her prideful arrogance, her sensual living, and her all-out aim to lure people into such a life. Because of this, her plagues will come in one day, death, grief, and famine, and she will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. So now in the remainder of chapter 18 and the first few verses of chapter 19, now we read about the response of the people to that fall of Babylon. What was their response to what happened? And what we see here is that there are none who are ambivalent. There there is just the lamentation of the world and the rejoicing of the church and heaven itself. So let's read. I'm going to read uh, verses uh, from chapter 18, beginning of verse 9 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll read from verse 19 a little bit later. Church, this is God's word. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth Weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all who trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour 
She has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to worship you through song, through prayer, through the receiving of the elements of the, the Lord's table. And we pray, Father, now that you would remain us, keep us in a spirit of worship as we turn to your word. May we be reminded what this is. It is your very breath. It is inspired by you. It is given to us to reveal you to us, to reveal our hopeless and lost condition and our need for a Redeemer. Father, may it edify the church. And Father, for those that don't know Christ who are among us, may the gospel ring clear and loud in their hearts and minds. And may you rescue them through faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we have two major sections here, as you may have noticed. Uh, verses 9 through 19 is the lamentation of the world. And then the remainder of chapter 18 and into the first five verses that we'll look at in a moment, we see the rejoicing of the church and the rejoicing of heaven. So let's look first at the response of the world what we have in verses 9 through 19 is almost that of a funeral dirge. It's a song of mourning and lament at the death of an individual. Babylon is fallen. Babylon is a culture, but here she's anthropomorphized. We see her almost as a person who is being judged, who is being tormented and burned. And this anthropomorphism of Babylon is further amplified by those who lament her, fall, her fallenness, that, that she's being judged. There are three groups here that lament her fall. There are the kings of the earth, the merchants, and the mariners. We're told the, the, the seafaring men and the shipmasters who ship these, this merchandise throughout the world. And these three groups are meant to represent the whole world. In particular, those who have not come to faith in Christ. Unbelievers at this point. Those who have chosen to receive the mark of the beast. Who are outside the family of God. They're represented by these three groups. And they will, all of them, lament the fall of Babylon. As we read through this section, we see four common elements to their lament. First of all, 
they all weep and wail. And we need to ask ourselves why. Why, why are they crying? What is it that they love that they are missing? Why are they mourning here? All three weep and wail. Secondly, all three, we're told, stand far off as she's being judged, as she's being tormented and punished. And she receives what is justly her reward for her, for her wickedness. We're told that the kings of the earth and the merchants and the mariners, all of them, they stand far off from this. It was a, an effort at self-preservation, hoping against hope that they will not be touched by this very same punishment. Thirdly, all three pronounce woe over Babylon. They say, alas, alas. Some translations translate that woe, woe. This was an exclamation of both, both grief and cursing, not cursing at them, but, but pronouncing or recognizing that they are cursed. Woe, woe is the great city. This was them recognizing that there is no recovery from this, that, that Babylon is gone forever. She's not going to revive, that this punishment is great and everlasting, this judgment of Babylon. Now, I want us to spend a few moments examining a bit closely why these three groups are lamenting at the fall of Babylon. What are they crying about? What does this tell us about their heart? What do they love and what are they mourning? For the kings of the earth, we're not told precisely what they are crying about, what they're weeping and wailing about, but we are told that they are given the most intimate of relationships with Babylon. And we're told that they committed sexual immorality with her and that they lived in luxury with her. As we've noted throughout this extended look at Babylon from chapter 17 to 19, this reference to sexual immorality while, while not exclusive of sexual immorality, certainly includes that. But more than that, it was a symbolic reference to their idolatry and following after other gods. These kings of the earth had, had fallen head over heels for Babylon and all that she offered to them to the point where they worshipped her. They worshipped her power, her influence, that she wielded. Why? Because they wanted to wield the very same power and influence over their subjects. Additionally, we're told that they lived in luxury with her, with Babylon. These kings and those who were in power with them, they loved their opulent lifestyle. They loved their luxurious living. They delighted in their comfortable lives. And so their mourning was not really a mourning for Babylon, as if they were mourning a person as one would do at a funeral. That's not what they're mourning. They're mourning the loss of their own power and influence and opulent lifestyles. is gone. Babylon was their gravy train, and the gravy train is no more. No more gravy train, no more gravy. It's gone. And they mourn that. 
Now, as we sit in judgment of these kings of the earth, we should remind ourselves that most of us in the 21st century America, our lives are at least as comfortable and luxurious as the kings of the earth in John's day, and probably a lot more comfortable and luxurious. How attached are we, how attached are you to your comfort and your leisure? And what if it all disappeared? What if it all went away? What would be your response? What about the merchants and the mariners? For what did they weep and wail? Why were they lamenting? Verse 11 tells us outright, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. So with the destruction of this global end-time culture that has influence throughout the entire world, the entire world falls into great economic collapse and commerce comes to a screeching halt. Now, we experienced a fairly significant disruption of commerce during the height of the pandemic. And in some areas, it hasn't yet returned to normal. But at least we had Uber Eats and Grubhub when the restaurants closed and Instacart when we couldn't get groceries. And while there are still some segments of our economy that haven't quite returned to to normal, there are still some issues with supply chain in some areas. For the most part, commerce has been restored. But that will not be the case when what Revelation 18 describes actually occurs. At that point, there will be no more commerce. Global economy will come to a screeching halt, and all these things that are listed in verses 12 and 13 that are bought and sold will be bought and sold no more. Look look at what he describes. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horse and harriets, and slaves, that is, human souls. Now, I think parenthetically, as we look over that and just do a quick inventory of our own lives and our own homes, I think we'll find that many of these things we already own. Now, in John's day, these were items and merchandise that was descriptive of a wealthy person. Poor people didn't have these things. Only the wealthy had these things. But I would venture to say that most of us in this room have a majority of these things outside of articles of ivory and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and certainly I would hope human souls and slaves. But outside of that, most of these we probably already own, and if we didn't, we can go down to the store and buy them. So we are both wealthy and privileged compared to the majority world today, as well as most cultures throughout world history. And what did the voice from heaven have to say about how the merchants felt about these products? Look at verse 14. It says, The fruit for which your soul longed, has gone from you. 
and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. So why did these merchants mourn and wail? Because of the loss of that for which their soul longed. That was the key. The loss of that for which their soul longed. And what was that? Money? Wealth? Success? Materialism? As is said of them in verse 15, they gained wealth from her, and now all of that is gone. And so they lament. That for which their soul longed is gone, and they lament as a result of that. The very same thing is true for the mariners. We're told in verse 19 that they grew rich by her wealth. Why? Well, because most of this merchandise that's listed in verses 12 and 13 doesn't come naturally from the Middle East. It has to be shipped there. And once it's shipped there, when it's sold, it's shipped elsewhere. So here's your supply chain right here. And it's obliterated. It's gone. Nobody is, is buying and selling, and so there's no need to ship that for which is no longer bought and sold. They had thrown in their lot with Babylon and were completely dependent on the success of the merchants themselves. And when that comes to a standstill, these guys are out of work, and there's no source of outcome. And apparently they didn't put anything in savings because now they're completely broke. And friends, as we look at these three groups, the kings of the earth, the merchants, the mariners, I hope we could all recognize that we're looking in the mirror at 21st century mankind because this is a description of us, people today. And so the question for us is, are we so enraptured by the trinkets of the world around us, whether it's power and influence, success and materialism, living lives of comfort and luxury, a never-ending supply of products that help us live those lives of luxury and comfort, an abundance of materialism, a robust economy, and a perhaps unhealthy dependence on a great source of income. Are we so dependent on, and not just dependent on, in love with and enraptured by these things that when they're gone we will lament and weep and wail. I think there are three, three lessons for us from this section of chapter 18. First of all, fundamentally, this world won't last forever. I, I think, let's don't, let's don't skip over that and just assume that we are coming to grips with that. This world won't last forever. This is a recurring theme throughout the book of Revelation. This world is passing away. It might look like it's doing well. It might look like human culture is advancing and progressing and making new strides of achievement and prospering. But there will come a day when no stone remains upon another and it will all be gone. And in particular, as we look today at the Babylon of our day, this this secular culture around us that is so immensely powerful and influential it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it won't be here forever but it won't it is passing away and so consequently secondly don't love it as if it will it's not going to last forever and so don't love it as if it will 
Let's be reminded of what this same John wrote in his first epistle. We looked at it last week. It, it, we would do well to be reminded of it again today. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what is that? The desires of the flesh, the pride of the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't miss the imperative there. There's a negative imperative verb there. Do not love the world. And the example here of the kings of the earth and the merchants and the mariners, the, the, the example of their lament at the loss of all that they had hoped in and placed their hope in and their love for is gone. Their lament is meant to echo this very same negative command for us. Don't love the world. As we said last week, come out of her church. Come out of Babylon. Now, we know that when John says, don't love the world, we know he's not talking about people. Because those are the people that we're called to take the gospel to. He's not saying, don't love people. He's saying, he's talking here about Babylon. Don't love the spirit of the world. Don't love this godless pagan culture that, that like a prostitute, offers temporary delight and pleasures while she plots to rob us of our very lives. Don't fall into her allurement. Instead, come out of her. Don't love her so that you will not be among those who lament. But I think there's a third lesson here. Given the focus here, it seems to be on the economic impact of her fall, at least on the merchants and the mariners. And given our own culture's um, seemingly success at tempting us with materialism. I, I think here there's a lesson about materialism, how we should think about them, how we should use them, that we ought to have a biblical perspective, a biblical mindset of our financial resources, our material possessions, all of that. Our earthly possessions, we're reminded all are not ours. <laughs> They're given to us by God. They're entrusted to us. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And we think that we did it with our own hands. No, God has blessed us with this, and we're simply to steward that for which he has given us. It's not about money and finances and good and nice things being evil. It's about our love for them, our inordinate love for them. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. There's a stern warning here. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, longing, insatiable appetite for it. It is through this craving that some have wandered even from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The Apostle James warns the people of his day, particularly the, the wealthy of his day, to be wary of how wealth can subtly cause us to lose our moral anchor 
and can cause us to subtly find ourselves doing things that we know are wrong just so that we can maintain that wealth. Listen to this warning that James gives. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's a pretty stern warning. He wants to get our attention. And then what does he say in verse 4? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who kept back which were kept back by fraud by you, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the host. The wealthy of their day were withholding wages from those who were working in their own fields. Why? Because they had to protect it. They had an insatiable appetite. They had to have more. What they had wasn't enough. That's the lie of materialism and wealth. It says I will satisfy you, and it never does. It says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the harvest. He says you've lived in, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. The warning there is that we can be so desirous of more that our moral anchor slips such that we will do anything we have to do to protect that and maintain that. Jesus, of course, warns his disciples not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where Thieves do not break in and steal. He also told his disciples, man, you can't serve both God and money. You, you can't love both God and money. You're either going to love the one and hate the other or serve the one and be de despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Paul told Timothy to remind the folks in his church that they should see their stewardship of their resources as a key indicator of their walk with God. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor, here, listen to this, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Tell them they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, a biblical perspective of our finances and our material possessions is not about money is bad and, and, and materialism, is, uh, good possessions are bad and, and you can't have a retirement fund and, and, and you can't have nice things. It's not about that. It's about our heart. What do we love? What do we serve? And in what are we putting our hope? And Revelation 18 here is a stern warning for us against the ever-present temptation 
of loving money itself and serving self by placating our desires with more stuff and putting our hope in a Babylon out there that we're hoping will keep giving that stuff to us. We need to be warned against falling into that mindset because one day, as this tells us, all that will be gone. All that stuff will be gone. And if we lament their loss, then we have loved the world too much. Our response to that loss will tell us where our allegiances lie and where our heart is. If we lament it, we've loved the world too much. But if we've maintained a love for God above all, then we will not lament but rejoice. So now we see in the remainder of chapter 18 the rejoicing of the church and of heaven itself. The charge is in verse 20. He says, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The, the verb rejoice there is an imperative. It's a command for us. Rejoice. And remember who's saying this. We said in, in chapter 18, verse 4, this is the, the loud voice that came down from heaven, the same one that says, Come out of her, my people. This is either the voice of God himself or a voice speaking on God's behalf. But regardless, this is a command from the Lord. This is a command from God. Rejoice. Rejoice over her. This is a command to heaven. It's a command to the, uh, the saints, the prophets and apostles. In other words, the church. And what is the basis for our rejoicing? For God has given you judgment over her against her. This is not a, a, a sadistic rejoicing over the suffering of people. That's not what this is. Or, 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 or some kind of cruel desire for revenge that's now been satisfied. Instead, this is rejoicing for what God has done. God, the rightful judge, has rightly judged. He is just, and he has justly punished Babylon. She is getting what she deserves. And it's interesting that, to note that it says here, God has given judgment for you against her. This is not revenge in our heart. This is, this is God making things right. God is answering the cry, the petition of the martyrs who are under the altar that we learned about in Revelation chapter 6. After that fifth seal was opened. Let, let me read what what. It said there, when I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain with the word of, slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, now, in the fullness of time, the full number of their fellow servants, fellow martyrs, has been complete. And now, God is answering their plea for vindication as he gives judgment for them against her. Verse 21, this mighty angel uh, illustrates the fall of Babylon and picks up a giant millstone and throws it into the sea. 
Babylon will be no more, and neither will the the trinkets of Babylon. They will be no more as well. Look at the list of good things that we're told that will be no more in verses 22 and 23. Music will be no more. Craftsmanship will be no more. The sound of the mill will be heard no more. That's the production of food no more. The, the light of the lamp will shine no more in the night, making way for the commerce to occur through the night. So no more commerce, no more light, no more marriage. These are all good things that will disappear when Babylon is judged. And I think we should note here this subtle contrasting again. We've seen it before. We see it here again. A contrasting between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Here we're told of all the good that will be no more in Babylon. And in chapter 21, we'll see all the bad that will be no more in the New Jerusalem. No more crying, no more mourning, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Scott Duvall notes that the absence of all good from the wicked city stands in contrast to the absence of all evil from the heavenly city. And then chapter 18 concludes with this further justification of her judgment For your merchants, Babylon's merchants, were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. In other words, her judgment is well earned. Her judgment is deserved. But in the first five verses now of chapter 19, I want us to look there. John hears all of heaven obeying the command from chapter 18, verse 20, to rejoice. Chapter 18, 20, verse 20 said, Rejoice over her, O heaven. And now what we have in the first five verses of chapter 19 is, is heaven obeying that command to rejoice, for God has rightly judged the great prostitute. The First 10 verses of chapter 19 are essentially a hallelujah chorus. And we're going to see part of the actual hallelujah chorus included in chapter 19. They start here in these first five verses with a celebration of the fall of Babylon. But they will continue in the next passage as we are prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this will pave the way for the return of Christ in the second half of chapter 19. So these first five verses are a segue, really, to the return of Christ. Babylon is defeated, and now heaven rejoices. And the rejoicing of heaven is an announcement of the return of Christ. And so we're almost there, but listen first to the rejoicing of heaven at the fall of Babylon. The great harlot that deceives the nations tries to lure us away from Christ, is defeated. She's utterly destroyed. How does heaven respond? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Hallelujah. Three times that word is repeated here. Hallelujah. It's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, Alleluia. In Hebrew, it's two words, Hallel, which simply means praise. It's, a, it's an imperative, it's a command. Praise, worship, shout exclamation, and then Yah. Yah, which is, a, which is shorthand. For the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the personal name for God that was so holy that the scribes did not include a Hebrew vowel pointing on those Hebrew consonants. Yahweh. This this is a a contraction, a, a shorthand for Yahweh. This means praise Yahweh. This is the only right and true response for heaven to the news of the fall of Babylon. The world laments, but heaven cries out, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord of heaven and earth. Praise God, for He is just. His his judgment is true and just. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah! He judges and His judgment is true. His judgment is fair and right. And he saves. Salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. When Christ returns, and we're almost there, the lament of those outside of God's family will be so much greater than the lament of these kings of the earth and the merchants and the mariners. And if you do not know Christ by faith, if He were to return today, your lament would be both great and eternal. Why? Because your sin has separated you from a holy God who judges with justice and righteousness whose judgment is holy and pure and right and fair and apart from an answer for that sin your lament will be eternal and great this is why God sent his son this is why he sent Jesus This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper because of what that means. He sent His Son to to, to, to live the perfect life we never could. We're not righteous, He is. And to die on a cross in our place so so that those who place their trust in Him turn away from sin, repent of their sin and their their desire to live their life by their rules and not God's. To turn away from that and trust in Christ and His finished work on the cross as their only hope. Might be forgiven. 
rescued, redeemed, reconciled, justified. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ alone, I'm not saying have you been a part of a church for a long time or, or have you been dunked or had some kind of religious experience. I'm asking you, have you placed your trust in Christ alone? Have you turned away from sin and self-rule and trusted in Christ and his rule over your life? If you have not, and trust in Christ. That's your only hope. That's your only hope. So what's our response to this passage. First, don't be among those who will lament the fall of Babylon. Come out of her. Come out of her. Don't, don't, don't love her. Don't be like her. Don't, don't fall in love with the trinkets that she offers. We have to live in the wor- this world and navigate that balance. But, but, but don't fall in love with her. And, and friend, to the degree that you have, there is forgiveness found in the cross of Christ. That's why Jesus came to rescue us. So don't fall in love with her. So that we might lament her fall. Instead, rejoice at her fall. And you might say, well, she hasn't fallen yet. She's still in power. She's still influencing. She's still around. Yes, she is. But the matter's been settled. And you look around and you might see that she's in power. And it might look like things are still advancing and progressing. But there's a coming a day when she will fall. And her fall will be complete and forever and everlasting. We can rejoice that this is an already determined future. God's judgment will occur and it will be swift and just and fair and eternal. And so rejoice even today, even though she may be in power. And then finally, if you have not come to faith in Christ, let today be the day of your salvation for salvation belongs to this God. Will you trust in him? Let's pray. When we're confronted, Lord, with the call to come out of her, there are so many competing desires that exist in us as we wrestle with indwelling sin and this corrupted flesh that we still have. But we trust, Lord, that through the body of Christ and through the preaching of your word, and through our time in it with fellow brothers and sisters, you are conforming us to the image of Christ, and you are forming us for another day. And so, Father, we just ask for your help in this as we navigate this world in which Babylon is still in power. Help us, Father, to live out a missional life where we are continuing to be in the world and take the gospel to those around us who so desperately need it, but not to look like the world. Help us to be ambassadors of Christ where we serve as missionaries from another land and keep our eyes fixed on that land, longing for the return of Christ so that we might be reunited with you face to face. And Father, we come before you and we ask for those who do not know you by faith in your son, Jesus Christ, this morning, who are in this very room. God, we ask that you might grant to them faith, give them faith to turn from their sin and self-rule and trust in Christ and his rule over their life. Lead them, Father, to repentance and faith in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.